Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our source, our source of strength and hope and peace. It is your word. It is living and active, and it cuts us to the quick. Lord, there's nothing else in this world that can dig deeper into us than your word. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that they're not just words written in a book 2,000 years ago that have some good sayings in it, but Lord, it is life. It is power. It is strength. Lord, we thank you that it reveals to us the only way to salvation, the only way to reconciliation with you, and that's through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that blood that was spilt for us, for the Holy Spirit that you've indwelt us with, to walk through every step of the way of this life and to, to seal us and to transform us into the people that you want us to be. So Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts this morning, that the seeds of your truth would be buried deep within us, not just stay there, but bear real fruit in our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know there are a few in our congregation who work in careers that are well within or somewhat connected to construction. The way buildings are built and the engineering and the physics knowledge needed to construct buildings well. I can think of three people already. Uh, John Niddle, Glenn Exa, and Alex Azuda who know this information. They, they, they're, they're very well connected to that. I discovered in my research for this morning's message that engineers, building designers, and construction workers are having to find new and fascinating ways to deal with the increasing frequency of natural disasters when it comes to building construction. In fact, I discovered that in 2017 alone, one year, there were 15 natural disasters in the U.S., of which cost over $1 billion in damages each. Over $1 billion in damages apiece. And there were 15 of those in one year alone. So designers and engineers have, to, have had to grapple with this development in the U.S., Homes and commercial buildings constructed in coastal areas, for instance, are now, being, are now being built with special breakaway walls on the ground level that floodwaters knock down easily. They're purposely built this way. So floodwaters knock them down easily, thus providing a way for floodwaters to rush through these buildings without washing them away. In places where hurricanes are becoming more and more frequent, steel is being used for the skeletons of these buildings, which is a highly ductile material and can move with the wind without being structurally compromised or collapsing. When it comes to dealing with a higher frequency of earthquakes, especially in metropolitan areas, massive pendulums are being installed in skyscrapers to absorb the vibrations of earthquakes so those skyscrapers don't come toppling down. Traditional ways of just pouring a sure foundation to ensure a strong house, especially in these areas where natural disasters are becoming more and more frequent with stronger and stronger intensities, doesn't cut it anymore. But thank God, when it comes to the foundation of biblical Christianity, faith in Jesus found in God's word, that always remains strong. That will never be compromised. Nothing more needs to be added to that, and we have no worry that it will ever be structurally compromised. It will always be sure. 
the first point in our passage this morning is I, I just want to do a little bit of a, of a review before we uh, get into our passage this morning. Last week, we took a look at the foundation of biblical Christianity, especially when it comes to answering the big life question, why are we here? Why are we here? We saw how the entire answer wrapped up in one verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, all wrapped up in one verse, was nestled within a bigger context. That context was the controversy that those who made up the Corinthian church were now having to figure out a way to deal with. The controversy had to do with their immediate context of their everyday life living in the Roman-influenced city of Corinth. You see, the problem was that the pagan Greek and Roman religions were actively dedicating and sacrificing animals to their deities in their temples. The less desirable portions of those animals were burned up in these sacrifices, and the more desirable portions would be sold in the marketplace. If you were, in everyday, if you were an everyday uh, Corinthian Christian, you had no idea if the meat you were buying in the marketplace was dedicated and sacrificed to pagan deities or not. Now, us sitting here in Fellowship Church in 21st century America, we might say, well, big deal, who cares? But further on in our passage this morning, we'll discover that there were many in the Corinthian church who came out of a Gentile and pagan background and didn't want to have anything to do with that aspect of their former lives. In addition were the moral dilemmas of being invited over to a pagan friend's house for a dinner party and not knowing the origin of the meat served there, or wondering if you should attend a pagan friend's wedding reception being held at a pagan temple where they were most likely serving sacrificed meat. If you remember from last week, what complicated things further was that those in Jewish background didn't want to take any chances on buying and consuming meat sacrificed to idols, so they only bought meat from their own Jewish marketplaces. This moral dilemma was causing disunity between the Gentile and Jewish Corinthian Christians. The Corinthian Christians had to wrestle with moral dilemmas when it came to their faith practically interacting with their pagan world just as much as we do today. Everyday moral dilemmas. And so they asked Paul in a previous com communication what they should do about it, how they should handle this controversy. Paul started out his answer, uh, answering this question by rebuking those who were handling it wrong. The phrase, all have knowledge, that Paul references in chapter 8, verse 1, is probably him appropriating another well-known Corinthian phrase that those who saw no problem with eating this kind of meat were using against those who weren't too sure about it. Paul basically says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8 that yes, we all have the knowledge that idols are meaningless because the gods they represent don't actually exist. But if anyone just tries to bulldoze over their brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with that custom without love and regard for them, they don't actually know anything. Knowledge and biblical theology are incredibly important, but they're only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is love for God, which Paul says in verse 3, and therefore living out that biblical theology in love towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. First, and this is what we spent the majority of our time on last week, Paul wanted to confirm that the theology they had when it came to idols was spot on. 
And it was not to be misconstrued by any means that Paul was compromising any on that piece of theology. That theological affirmation is found in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 8. That theological affirmation culminated in verse 6, which is where we find the clear answer to the big question, why are we here? Pull it up here. And this is why we're here. There is but one God, the Father, through whom are all things, and we exist for Him. Nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with any aspirations we have or, or expectations we have or wishes we have. It has nothing to do with us. We exist for Him. We exist for the Father. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So we're empowered to exist for the Father by Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. That's the whole answer to the big question, why are we here, in a nutshell. Right here. We, we, we studied that uh, uh, in, in detail last week. And if you're, if you're wondering what we talked about last week, that message is on our website and on our podcast. But this is the whole answer in a nutshell. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our aspirations, anything we want to accomplish, or anything we desire. Our existence has everything and only to do with living our lives to glorify the Father and to be empowered to do so through Jesus. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that, even though we love to make it more complicated than that. Now Paul uses that foundation for our lives, that we exist to bring glory to the Father through the Son to address the Corinthians' contextual and practical moral dilemma. We'll see how it connects here. His answer basically goes hand in hand with what, we've al- with what he's already written to the Corinthians when he said, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. That line of thinking flows right into Paul's instruction in our passage this morning, and we'll see exactly how it does. So we talked about the review. Our second point today is the rebuttal, Paul uh, uh, giving the instruction against that. What was causing most of the disunity in the Corinthian church on this topic was what Paul had already referenced at the beginning part of this chapter, and then what Paul references in verse 7. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's in the New Testament. If you, ha- if you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, I want everybody to turn to this and see this together. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that, or you can ask a neighbor. Uh, but we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to be starting in verse 7. And Paul writes, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Like I mentioned already, there were many who made up the Corinthian church who came out of the Greek and Roman pagan religions and then put their faith in the one true God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In connection with the lifestyle, in direct connection with with that, was engaging in temple prostitution, which Paul already condemned, and the celebratory consumption of this temple meat. Those who came out of this lifestyle, no doubt, struggled with whether or not they should have anything to do with that part of their former lives. 
They took what Paul would write elsewhere and no doubt already told them, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. They took that to heart. Most of these Gentile Corinthian Christians saw just the simple temple meat consumption as part of their old sinful nature and former way of life and something they should have nothing to do with anymore, that they should completely cast off. Just the thought of consuming it in celebration of pagan gods or even nonchalantly brought back all the memories of the emptiness and darkness of their former lives. They wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Meanwhile, there were some in the church who were, advocate, who were advocating, who cares? Idols are meaningless, and the deities they represent don't exist, so it doesn't matter if meat sacrificed to them is sacrificed to them, and we eat it or not. It doesn't matter. Why do you care so much? You see the disunity and the cause for disunity in the church. Paul says in verse 7, listen, you need to start thinking about especially those who are new Christians in your church and have just come out of that background. They don't have the same conviction you do about this meat and its connection. In fact, when they eat it, their minds immediately go to their past connection to it, and because of that, their conscience is defiled. In that case, it doesn't matter what you think. You need to start being sensitive to what they're thinking and how this is spiritually affecting them. Paul is also quick to say that the consumption of this meat, which previously connected a pagan person to a pagan deity, doesn't have anything to do with God. In fact, in connection with Christians not being required to follow the Jewish dietary laws, food consumption, no matter what it was, neither commended us to God or compromised our relationship with God. It was just simply food. That's what he says in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. It's just simply food. In this way, he affirmed the theology of the stronger conscienced believers, but will spend the rest of his time on this topic promoting a sensitive approach to those who still saw it as sin. While in knowledge and theology, the Christian had the liberty to eat whatever they wanted, the situation also impacted how that liberty should be lived out. Paul explains that next in verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Just because we have certain liberties as Christians that were previously not recognized under the Mosaic Covenant, that does not mean we must exercise all of them, especially if it will harm another spiritual walk. Paul explains this further on in the letter, and that while he is afforded all the liberties his Christian faith gives him, he purposely doesn't take advantage of all of them on purpose to promote the gospel towards many different people of many different backgrounds. He says, even though I'm a free man with no master, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. 
When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law, the Jewish people. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. And then he's quick to follow that up with, but I do not ignore the law of God. I, I obey the law of Christ, the law fulfilled in Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. That hits a little too close to home, doesn't it? That's a hard pill to swallow. How many here thinks they're doing a good job of that? But you know what? It connects directly with what Paul has already answered the question with, why are we here? We are here to glorify God. And that directly includes living a life that affects the most people putting their faith in Jesus as well. Again, we exist not for our own pleasure and our own enjoyment. We exist for the Father. And His desire is to use us to bring more people into His family. I think that's more than enough to cause us to take a mirror up to ourselves, isn't it? What will we do with that? How will this change our lives? We can't walk out from this place unchanged by that. We have to surrender that to God right now. If, simply, if someone simply heard what we're talking about, watched what we did in handling stressful and unfair situations in everyday life, and thought was important by what we focused our time doing, would any of those things look any different than the random unbeliever or a new believer living a similar life? Would they look any different? It's these questions we must think about and change things in our life according to because the opposite way of thinking is devastating. Verses 10, 10 through 12. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat those things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Yikes. It's that important, brothers and sisters. It's that important. Paul is saying, you who think you're spiritually strong and don't need to care about publicly eating meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples because it doesn't matter to you. There is the very real possibility that one of your new brothers or sisters in Christ sees you doing that. Even though they still think it's sin in their spiritual immaturity, they'll see you doing it 
and be strengthened to do it too, even though it's still a sin to them. You've now caused them to knowingly sin in their minds, which makes you guilty of sinning against Jesus, who went to the tortuous death on a cross to save that person from sin. On this, one biblical scholar noted that Paul's instruction in our passage this morning only has to do with the situation of eating meat in a pagan temple, publicly, in direct celebration of that idol and pagan deity. He's not giving instruction on the other dilemmas of simply buying meat in the marketplace and not knowing its origin for personal consumption. He's not given that instruction yet, nor is he instructed about eating food at a dinner party hosted by pagan friends. He's only addressing the scenario of somebody eating publicly at a temple celebration and eating that meat where somebody can see them. I'm sure we could find, we don't, deal with eating meat sacrificed to idols in Peaburg. We don't deal with that here. But I'm absolutely positive that we could find similar public scenarios where while we have liberty in certain areas as Christians, we need to be careful with it. And sometimes it's best to not take advantage of some liberties for the sake of the spiritual walks of those who are seeing us or who may see us. This is the why behind Paul's strong instruction here. Paul explains further on, which we touched on last week as well, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance, or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. Again, he affirms that theology. I am saying that these sacrifices are not offered, are not in reality not offered to those gods at all. They're offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. See, while the knowledge the stronger believers had was true, it didn't matter when it came to the unity of the church. Their fellow brothers and sisters still made the connection of the sacrificed meat to idols and pagan deities. And while those in and of themselves were meaningless and didn't exist, the power behind them was demonic. The power behind them was demonic. And it was because of that that Paul wanted all of the believers in Corinth, mature or immature, to stay away from eating celebratory meals in pagan temples. He's already told them that nor idolaters will inherit the kingdom of God. And will tell them, based on the demonic source, to flee from idolatry. On that note, while we may not deal with idols and the pagan deities they represent as much here in the Peaburg, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania areas, there are other things that many unbelievers like to play around with that are actually demonic in source and power. As Paul often wrote, he, he often started things off by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. So I'm borrowing that. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. Anything having to do with astrology, such as horoscopes, palm readings, fortune telling, tarot card reading, or anything similar, is demonic in its source and power. 
Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not open yourself up to the demonic realm. Flee from it. Have nothing to do with it as a child of God. Nothing and no one holds the keys to the future but God himself. No one can reveal anything about the future to you but God. Everything else is either flat-out deception or is demonically influenced. Likewise, no one can talk to the dead. No one can bring you a message from a dead loved one, no matter how persuasive they act. That is either flat-out deception or demonically influenced. This may be a surprise to you. Any ghost experience, sighting, or interaction is in connection with demons. Ouija boards are obvious. Have nothing to do with anything having to do with that. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Their master, our enemy, is referenced in Scripture as the father of lies. And he will stop at nothing to scare and distract people from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth found in God's word. So he comes up with these other fascinating things. Do not underestimate what the enemy of your soul will use to distract you from the truth. Flee from it. Have nothing to do with it as a child of God. The only thing that will come out of that is you opening the door to the demonic realm. That is the only thing that will come out of it, any of those things. Safe to say, I don't think any of us want that. We have plenty to intrigue and fascinate us about Almighty God without playing around with any of that other stuff anyways. You're not missing out on anything other than opening yourself up to the enemy's spiritual oppression. Paul then concludes this part of this topic with verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. As noted by one biblical scholar, Paul is not outright telling the stronger believers to give up meat, eating meat altogether. That's not what he's saying here. Just to put brotherly love ahead of their own interests according to to the situation. He'll talk more about the personal situations later. If the situation would cause an onlooking brother or sister to sin, then they should not partake. Paul notes what he would do in that situation. He believed it important enough to give it up altogether if it meant keeping another brother and sister from sinning. Like I said, Paul really only addressed the scenario where some Corinthian believers thought it perfectly okay to take part in celebratory dinners in pagan temples where there was obviously sacrificed meat to those idols being consumed and some Corinthian believers not thinking that was okay. Paul noted that yes, the theology that those pagan deities didn't exist and therefore the idols were meaningless, but that should not be the only thing the Corinthians factored in their thinking. They also needed to live out brotherly love and be sensitive to the spiritual needs of their brothers and sisters. And anyway, while the pagan gods and idols were meaningless, the demonic powers behind those beliefs certainly were not. Because of that, the Corinthians should stay away 
from consuming obviously sacrificed meat in pagan temple celebrations. We always have people watching us as believers. You may or may not know that. We always have people watching us as believers, seeing if there's anything different about us and wondering if they want what we have or if it doesn't matter. New believers are looking to more mature believers as examples. Mature believers, are you being sensitive to the spiritual walks of your brothers and sisters or just doing what you want according to Christian liberty because you can? Brothers and sisters, whether you think you're mature or not, is the way you're living your life in every area any different from the way your unbelieving friends and family are living? Is it any different? Are you showing them how important a life with God through Christ is, or is there not much difference? This morning was one of those convicting messages. It wasn't meant to make us feel good. I'm sorry. We all must take these words to heart, hold the mirror up to ourselves, and make any changes that need to be made. In connection with what we talked about both last week and this week, our lives are not our own. Our lives are not our own to be, li to be lived out the way that we want them to. We exist to bring glory to the Father in every area of our lives, especially in the areas other people can see. That not only gives us our foundational purpose, but it also gives us a godly responsibility through the empowerment of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the big question we need to take away from today is are we living that way? Is that how we're living? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful words. They cut us to the quick. Lord, I pray that we would not sweep anything under the rug, ignore it, neglect it. But Lord, we would take all of these words to heart. That we would have an honest conversation with you and ask you to, to change things in our lives that if people saw us, it wouldn't, make much it wouldn't be much of a difference between their lives and ours. Lord, I pray that we would surrender every area of our lives to you, especially the ones that people can see, to show those around us how important faith in Jesus really is to us and that they should want it too, that it is our only hope and it can and must be their only hope. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in glory to you so that we may bring, we too may bring as many people as we can into your family. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.